Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Ritual. So, y'all, remember how I was in the hospital back in July? Well, it's time for me to admit that it was because I ate bad sushi. So embarrassing. I should have listened to my gut and not bought sushi at that random grocery store. Afterward, my stomach was so messed up from like weeks of antibiotics that I knew I needed to get a new probiotic added to my regimen. That's when my friend told me about Ritual Vitamins. They have Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one clinically studied prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic that can help support a balanced gut microbiome. I started taking Ritual right away, and the upset stomach that I was getting most afternoons went away. I love that Ritual packs so much good stuff into one minty capsule. And these vitamins don't need to be refrigerated, so it's like really easy to take with you when you travel, and y'all know I travel a lot. It's time to listen to your gut. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com backslash unruly to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y for 30% off. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm doing part two of our first ever two-part episode on Rosa Parks. You might have heard of her from a little thing called the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Last episode, we covered her childhood, early activism, and the moment when she almost lost hope before the bus boycott began. If you haven't already listened to that episode, I really do recommend that you check it out first, because it will inform a lot of what I talk about today. Real quick before we get into her story, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to the unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. Okay, let's hop back in time. Rosa Parks' arrest for refusing to move for a white person proved to be a last straw for the black community of Montgomery, Alabama. Parks had on many occasions lamented what she saw as complacency of the community in Montgomery, and Dr. King wrote about the, quote, appalling lack of unity in Montgomery. If it was complacency, it was rooted in fear. Fear of being singled out, retaliated against, imprisoned, attacked. White people had an arsenal of weapons to maintain the status quo, and standing up alone could make a hard life harder. King had thought it would take a miracle to unite them. Enter the Women's Political Council President Joanne Robinson again. She didn't wait for unity. She called the WPC's leadership and called for a one-day boycott of Montgomery's buses on Monday, the day Parks was due to appear in court. Then, despite the danger she would have faced as a woman alone at night, Robinson went to her office at the Alabama State College and made up a bunch of leaflets announcing the boycott with two students and a colleague. She called Nixon around 3 a.m. and told him of her plans, but she didn't tell Mrs. Parks. In fact, she specifically said the WPC, quote, will not wait for Mrs. Parks' consent to call for a boycott of the city buses. 
They stayed up all night planning the distribution of some 35,000 leaflets. Nixon, meanwhile, was putting his networks to use too. He called on ministers to meet on Friday night in the hopes of getting them to tell their congregations to boycott the buses as part of their sermons on Sunday. He called specifically on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to lead this meeting, thinking the young man hadn't been in Montgomery long enough to have made allies or enemies that would lead to the ministers refusing to help. King was successful, cementing his own role in Montgomery's fight for freedom in the process. Nixon would later say that no one would ever have heard of Reverend King if Mrs. Parks had given up her seat. Meanwhile, on Friday morning, Mr. and Mrs. Parks both went to work as normal. She attended the meeting with the ministers that night. As Jean Thero Harris points out in her book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, her gender worked in her favor because the ministers could not be seen abandoning a good Christian woman. Though she spoke at this meeting, Rosa Parks would end up being sidelined in leading the boycott. While her time within the community and working for the NAACP was what had made everyone else trust her, leaders made the decision to downplay those facts as the press got involved. Instead, her respectability was focused on her faith, her job, her marriage. Ties to leftist organizations would have only stirred latent Cold War fears of militancy, communism, and grassroots movements. Her history of activism had to be hidden in order to keep this movement safe. This became extremely important as the government tried to stop their protest. When they outlawed the NAACP in June 1956, six months into the bus boycott, Rosa Parks' involvement with the NAACP wasn't mentioned. But the mythology lived long past the end of the boycott, and as Theo Harris points out, it took on a gendered spin. Her job title was actually Assistant Taylor, but they began referring to her as a seamstress, something that continues today because it Americanized her, it feminized her, and it evoked another famous seamstress who fought for freedom, Betsy Ross. Word of the boycott got out. The reaction far surpassed anything Mrs. Parks had ever seen. She watched empty buses go by and described it as gratifying and unbelievable. It was the moment she had been waiting for. In the weeks, months, and years after the bus boycott began, people would claim that Rosa Parks was a plant, that she had been groomed for this moment, that the communists and the NAACP had told her what to do to create the perfect situation for their legal challenge to segregation. She wasn't. She wasn't a freedom writer. She wasn't a plant. She was a woman who believed strongly in herself and her convictions. When she arrived at court on Monday, December 5th, hundreds of people stood outside and in the corridors cheering for her. Her case was heard by Judge John Scott in a segregated courtroom. The trial lasted less than 30 minutes, with the prosecutor moving to charge Parks with violating state law rather than city ordinance. Obviously, he did this because she hadn't actually broken the city ordinance. As a recap from last episode, Montgomery had an interesting clause in its um, rule in its laws about uh, segregated bus seating. If there were no other empty seats on a bus, a black rider could not be asked to move in order to stand. They could only be asked to move for a white person if there was another empty seat further back. When Rosa was asked to move, there were no other empty seats on the bus. Therefore, the driver, Blake, was actually breaking the law of Montgomery, hence why the prosecutor would want to change her charge to violating state law rather than Sydney ordinance. And of course, the judge allowed it. Mrs. Parks didn't testify that day. Blake did, the bus driver, as did two white witnesses. Blake said that there were no other open seats. A witness directly contradicted him by saying that there was. Mrs. Parks was found guilty and fined $14. Her lawyer, Fred Gray, entered an appeal immediately. She took the rest of the day off of work. She wanted to help with the case, so Fred Gray asked her to answer the phone in his office, which was ringing off the hook. 
Decades later, she would finally admit the people were calling to talk to me, but I never told them who I was. They didn't know my voice, so I just took the messages. It's disappointing to think about now. Not that she didn't tell people who she was, but that she was stuck answering phones while decisions were being made about the protest by a group of men. It's yet one more way that her own story was sidelined, reducing her work to the one day she wouldn't get up. And, in fact, while the bulk of the work of the boycott would be done by church women, members of the Women's Political Council, and other female domestic workers, the leadership of the movement was all male. That evening, 15,000 people gathered for a meeting at the Holt Street Baptist Church. Only 5,000 made it inside. The rest clogged the streets surrounding the church, trying to hear what would become of the boycott. Mrs. Parks had a seat on the platform inside, but didn't speak, despite the crowd requesting it numerous times. She also asked to speak, and someone said, quote, you've said enough, which, wow. She was introduced, however, because they wanted people to see her. They wanted to ensure that she would become the symbol of the movement. Nixon gave a speech, and then King gave another. The people gathered decided to continue the boycott indefinitely and formed an organization called the Montgomery Improvement Association, or MIA. They collected $785 that night, which is a little over $8,000 today. Of course, once they decided to continue the protest indefinitely, a new issue arose. People in Montgomery weren't taking the bus because they were environmentally conscious. A lot of black people in Montgomery couldn't afford a car, and the bus system was necessary for them. Some people could walk everywhere, but Mrs. Parks helped the MIA set up an elaborate rideshare system within a week of the decision. 300 people volunteered their cars, and the system was complete with 40 designated pickup spots across the city. Drivers charged 10 cents, like the bus, and people would use the V for Victory sign to identify themselves to riders and drivers alike. Eventually, the MIA was arranging 15 to 20,000 rides per day and spending nearly $3,000 per week on transportation, which is about $30,700 today. It employed 15 dispatchers, including Mrs. Parks for a while, and 20 full-time drivers, all of whom had to have amazing strength because the police intimidation was intense. Officers would sit at dispatch points and pull over each car that came through, intimidating drivers and giving them tickets for infractions both real and imagined. Dispatch points had to change often. So how else did Montgomery respond? Well, some city leaders tried to blame the whole problem on a few, quote, rough bus drivers and said they wished the black community had brought their grievances to their attention before it became a boycott, claiming that they would have been remedied. Sounds a lot like 2020's A Few Bad Apples in the Police Department defense, doesn't it? They haven't learned new tricks yet, apparently. Some white leaders had the audacity to claim that Mrs. Park's arrest was the first that they had ever heard of black people having any problem with segregation, which is a stunning lie. There were some white moderates who respected the boycott, but they sure didn't step in to curb the violent tendencies of the more staunch segregationists. In the early days of the boycott, the MIA had made a few modest demands of the city when asked what it would take to end the boycott. They wanted first-come, first-served seating where black people would sit starting from the back and white people would start from the front, but no one would be asked to move. Respectful and courteous service and the hiring of black bus drivers. I want to note that these initial demands still uphold segregation, but, quote, the city's absolute unwillingness, end quote, to meet them where they started only made the resolve of the boycotters grow. At Christmas, the boycott was still going, and Mrs. Parks wrote to a friend that her family would not be celebrating, quote, the usual way, because all of their extra money was going to fund the carpool. The MIA called for a boycott of Christmas shopping, too, asking people to use the money that they would have spent on gifts to donate a third to charity, put a third in savings, and donate another third to the boycott. 
At the same time, there was a huge swell of support coming in from outside Montgomery. The most common gift other people sent were shoes, which Mrs. Parks loved to pass out to people. But then, on January 7th, 1956, Rosa Parks was let go from her job. They said they had decided to close the tailor shop and they were not going to replace the tailor. She was a trained assistant tailor and could easily have done the work of a tailor, but as a woman, she couldn't do any of the fitting for men's clothing. She received two weeks severance. And then, two weeks later, Raymond Parks was pushed out of his job as a barber on the Air Force base. White people angry about the protest off base refused to get their hair cut by him on base, and the situation became untenable. The Parks family was now without an income. Retribution had begun. At home, their phone rang constantly with death threats and insults. Mrs. Parks would simply hang up the phone if she answered when these people called, but because she had her activism to get her out of the house, the people who had to deal with these calls most often were her mother and her husband, which Parks herself really hated. Raymond especially found this to be very difficult and began drinking a lot. Counter-protest action was intense. Drivers for the boycott found their vehicles vandalized, walkers were pelted with rotting food, painted manure was thrown on homes, bricks thrown through windows, the KKK burned crosses on the campus of Alabama State, and Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested for speeding, supposedly. On January 30th, his home was bombed with his wife Coretta and the baby Yolanda inside. No one was hurt, thankfully, and instead of scaring the community, it hardened their resolve further. Dr. King preached nonviolence still, assuring people that even if he was stopped, quote, this movement will not stop. The next day, E.D. Nixon's house was bombed. Once again, no one was hurt, and the Parkses actually rushed over to help clean up. The MIA began providing protection to Mrs. Parks full-time. The FBI, who had been watching the situation for a while by that point, did nothing and said nothing when the police didn't do anything either. Despite the intimidation, the boycott was working. At the same time both Parkses lost their jobs, the bus company was severely economically impacted by the boycott. They had to raise adult fares from 10 to 15 cents and student fares from 5 to 8 cents. They laid off dozens of drivers and cut some routes entirely. The bus company wasn't actually owned outright by the city of Montgomery, it was leased from a northern company, and rumors began to circulate that Montgomery was going to lose the bus franchise. The boycott was only sustained because of the cooperation of thousands of people. And one way they came together was in, perhaps a bit ironically, saying that they had not been brought together. People feared that the city was going to try to bring the boycott down by imprisoning the organizers, so they said that there weren't organizers. In February, the city dredged up a 50-year-old law that outlawed boycotts and called more than 200 black people to testify before a grand jury regarding who was behind the boycott. 89 people, including Parks, were indicted on February 21st, 1956. In order to keep King from being isolated as the leader, the group turned themselves in together. It was the largest indictment in Alabama history, and the mood outside the courthouse was, quote, almost jubilant. Reporters had come to cover it, photographing everyone who was arrested as they walked in. Once again, the increasing pressure deepened the community's commitment. And then, finally, national news began to cover it. The boycott had been ignored by national media for two long months, but this huge indictment led the Washington Post's comment, saying the case was, quote, a monumental display of folly, and called the boycott, quote, impeccably lawful, orderly, dignified, and effective, end quote. The New York Times wrote a tongue-in-cheek bit about the crime wave in Alabama, though they were less supportive of the boycott's goals of full desegregation on buses. In the face of this, the MIA's resolve deepened further, and their demands became more forceful. They now wanted full desegregation of the buses in order to stop the boycott. 
Meanwhile, Fred Gray decided to bypass the regional circuit court, which had declined to hear Mrs. Parks' appeal. He started searching for plaintiffs for a class action lawsuit against Montgomery Mayor William A. Gale in federal court. Rosa Parks was initially on the list, but was taken off because her connections to the NAACP would seem too suspect, even though she had resigned her post as secretary in order to protect the boycott. Additionally, her ongoing case, she was appealing to the, the state Supreme Court now, would make it difficult to cast her as sympathetic, or so Gray thought. At the same time, the Parkses were severely suffering. The economic instability that had begun in January would continue for almost a decade. The stress of being the center of this boycott severely compromised the health of Mrs. Parks and her husband Raymond. Moreover, her status as a symbol of the boycott seemed to freeze her in time, and it was hard for people to see that she actually needed assistance. She became the property of the whole movement, which ironically meant no one person took responsibility for how she suffered. Few people helped her at all. Virginia Durr, who had seen her coming out of jail on December 1st, worked hard to find money and a job to help Mrs. Parks. Reverend King, when he finally heard about the situation, immediately wrote to the MIA treasurer, asking that the Parks family be given $300 out of their relief fund to help her immediately. It was the equivalent of 13 weeks of pay from her old job, but it didn't solve the larger problem. I will note that she wasn't alone. A lot of known boycotters were suffering economic reprisals from angry white Montgomerians. The MIA established a welfare committee and really became a broad-based social service agency. They bought food, paid people's rents and bills, and more. They knew that meeting people's basic needs would allow them to continue focusing on the boycott. Raymond Parks does not get enough credit for his part in all this. While a lot of historians are doing more to acknowledge the work that the wives of civil rights leaders did, they leave out Raymond just because he was a husband, but Rosa considered Raymond, quote, a partner and felt that he facilitated her activism during the boycott and in the following decades. The respect he had for her and her work sustained her. While worrying about her safety, he was willing to prioritize her political work. Jet Magazine would describe them as a modern-day power couple in their shared political commitment. Their marriage was foundational for her, and without Raymond's ongoing support, she might not have been as successful as she was. But Raymond continued to struggle throughout the boycott. The impact of economic insecurity, relentless harassment, and the terror of danger to his wife caused him to suffer a nervous breakdown during it. Rosa compared it all to living in a war zone and said his struggle was the same struggle as the trauma of battle. Raymond wasn't alone in this. In an interview in the 1980s, Mrs. Parks would recall that a lot of activists in the South drank a lot just, quote, to be able to sleep at night. City librarian Juliet Morgan, one of the few white women publicly supporting the protest, had a nervous breakdown after her support made her a target of unrelenting harassment. She died of suicide 18 months after the boycott began. Mrs. Parks spent much of 1926 on a tour of the United States, speaking at a variety of venues about her decision on the bus and the ongoing boycott in Montgomery. On May 24th, she represented the boycott at a rally titled Heroes of the South in Madison Square Garden in New York. Dr. King was originally supposed to headline, but had to pull out. The posters never even listed Rosa Parks, however. Eleanor Roosevelt, A. Philip Randolph, and E.D. Nixon all spoke. Mrs. Parks addressed the crowd, saying she'd give up her seat again if given the choice. Then actress Tallulah Bankhead took the stage, kissing Rosa Parks and declaring to the thousands of attendees, quote, there have been generations of bankheads in Alabama, but I'm not proud of what's happening there today. The rally raised $6,000, or about $60,000 today. While in New York, Mrs. Parks also rode the bus. She sat in a seat in the front, an event that was photographed by the New York Amsterdam News. Meaningfully, she also received her very first award ever from the Committee for Better Human Relations. 
she apparently teared up while accepting it, which honestly makes me tear up a little bit. On June 19, 1956, the U.S. Court for the Middle District of Alabama ruled on the class action lawsuit Fred Gray had put forth, Browder v. Gale. It declared that the separate but equal doctrine set forth by Plessy v. Ferguson, quote, can no longer be applied. The city appealed to the Supreme Court. On November 13, 1956, the Supreme Court unanimously upheld the district court decision, thereby nullifying Alabama state and local laws requiring segregation on buses. Rosa Parks called it a, quote, triumph for justice. The order mandating integration was received by the city on December 20th, 1956. The 382-day boycott ended. That day, the black community of Montgomery boarded the bus again and sat where they all pleased. For some of the organizers, it was bittersweet. The boycott had taken its toll on them, sure, but the unity of the city had been thrilling. On that day, a lot of the media ignored Mrs. Parks in favor of Reverend King and other ministers. Some accounts claim that she was with them, but she has stated unequivocally that she wasn't. On December 20th, Mrs. Parks stayed home to care for her ailing mother. Look Magazine found her at home and actually staged the iconic photo of her sitting on the bus with a stoic-faced white man sitting behind her. The man is a reporter named Nicholas Chris, who was just posing. In the midst of the photo shoot, they all boarded a bus being driven by none other than James Blake. The reporter seemed oblivious to this bit of irony. Of the coincidence, Parks said, we ignored each other. Bus desegregation was met with violence in Montgomery. King's door was destroyed by a shotgun blast a few days after. On January 9th, 1957, four Baptist churches were bombed. Soon after that, the houses of several influential organizers were bombed too. King's house was bombed again. By my count, this is the third or fourth time in a year. The economic instability the Parks family experienced continued. They worked when and where they could, but without white people willing to hire them, they couldn't get steady enough work. As the MIA found itself without the massive boycott to organize, they struggled to find meaning, and in that struggle began picking more fights with the NAACP. The old class fault lines that had divided the NAACP before came back to the forefront, and Mrs. Park's ongoing economic problems actually became fuel on the fire for both organizations. Worse, the people who had spent the boycott transforming Mrs. Parks into a palatable national symbol then were jealous of her status as a national symbol. She started to be unwelcome in Montgomery activist circles, further fueling the frustration and alienation she felt. Just eight months after the boycott ended, in August 1957, the Parkses left Montgomery and moved to Detroit, in part to be closer to Rose's brother Sylvester. The black press noticed this and pondered over her decision to leave. She insisted the move was purely financially motivated, protecting their achievements by trying to protect the reputation of the MIA. Even in her autobiography, My Story, first published in 1992, Mrs. Parks doesn't really acknowledge the truth of why they left Montgomery. But the financial mismanagement of the MIA came out regardless. It was revealed that ministers had been taking cuts of the, the donations from their flocks without disclosing it. While the Parks family struggled to make ends meet, a lot of the MIA leadership was padding their pockets. E.D. Nixon, who had worked with the NAACP and in the MIA, managed to both acknowledge this and sidestep his own responsibility in an interview in 1970, when he said, quote, Mrs. Parks stood up for the black community, but the community didn't stand up for her, not by a long shot. In this move, the Parks family was joining a large number of black migrants from the South to the North. Half a million Southerners went to Detroit during World War II, and the numbers continued to grow in the decades after the war. The black population of Detroit doubled between 1940 and 1950. However, even in Detroit, their struggles continued. They had slightly more opportunity, but Mrs. Parks still struggled to find work because, quote, being a notorious black woman did little to improve her job prospects just because she'd moved to another city. 
She eventually got a job sewing aprons and skirts for 10 hours a day at the Stockton Sewing Company. Mrs. Park's health problems especially got worse. In December 1959, she was hospitalized for an ulcer that required surgery. Soon after that, she had a tumor in her throat that needed to be removed. In May 1960, she was well enough again to go back to Highlander, where she helped student sit-inners plan their protests. The famous Woolworths lunch counter protest had begun in February of that year and was having a ripple effect across the nation. At the same time, the press picked up on the trouble she was facing. Magazines like Jet ran damning articles criticizing the ways that the MIA and the NAACP had abandoned her after she had raised thousands of dollars for each. The NAACP finally began to respond, if only because it was beginning to make them look bad. The book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, gets into much more detail about this time and the trouble they faced. And while it's an important piece of history that this happened, it also sticks in my mind that Mrs. Parks never really acknowledged this reality publicly. For her, those financial and health woes were a private affair, and she sort of hated to have that known by the larger public. This wasn't the era of GoFundMes and the understanding that a single medical emergency could bankrupt an American family, you know what I mean? So while there's more in the 1950s than I could cover, I'm choosing to skip over it. I encourage you to check out The Rebellious Life for more, though. In Detroit, Mrs. Parks found a city with extensive segregation. She'd been invited to visit and speak for the very militant anti-segregationist union Local 600 in 1956, and they had had to put her up in a hotel far from the speaking location because the hotels in downtown Detroit were not open to black guests. The quote-unquote white flight of people from downtown to the suburbs meant that downtown Detroit was effectively abandoned and ignored. The city government funneled money for upkeep only to wherever the white people lived. This was in direct opposition to what the North had said about itself for a long time. Northern people and Northern publications had long treated Jim Crow laws and segregation like they were only a Southern problem, but Detroit was proof that they weren't. Many restaurants wouldn't serve Black customers or would only allow them to get their food to go through the back. Hospitals separated the Black and white patients, and some had openly segregated wards. Schools were effectively segregated because the housing was so segregated through redlining. The only difference was that segregation wasn't so open that there were separate drinking fountains, buses, or movie theaters. Racism was more covert there. But as Jean Theo Harris said, Detroit offered, quote, a decidedly second-class citizenship for blacks. The system of racial caste and power in Detroit denied people of color equitable education, safe policing, real job opportunities, a responsive city government, regular quality sanitation, health services, and due process under the law, end quote. Though, there were some people who were more open about Northern racism. Mayor of Detroit suburb Dearborn, Orville Hubbard, had actually spoken with the Montgomery Advertiser during the bus boycotts, saying he, quote, supported complete segregation, one million percent. Black people can't get in here. These people are so anti-colored, much more than you in Alabama, end quote. Which, you know, what a thing to brag about. In 1961, the Parkses moved to the Virginia Park neighborhood. Rosa Parks would later call it just about the heart of the ghetto due to the segregation and poverty present there. So-called urban renewal and highway construction had compromised many neighborhoods of Detroit, displacing over 43,000 people, 70% of whom were black. Limited by covenant agreements and real estate and redlining, many of those black people moved to Virginia Park. Nearly 60,000 people lived in about 460 acres, low incomes often forcing them to subdivide already small apartments. It was a symptom of the structural problems that plagued Detroit, including redlining of neighborhoods, refusals of loans to black people for house upkeep, limited trash pickup, and overcrowding. Seeing all this, Mrs. Parks would later describe Detroit as, quote, the northern promised land that wasn't, end quote.
I'll tell you what comes next after a brief word from a sponsor. Today, I want to tell you all about empowering women as leaders. This Texas-based nonprofit provides scholarships and mentoring to women attending college at a non-traditional age. They have given over $300,000 in scholarships to over 120 women aged 23 to 64 to help them finish their degrees. NEWL has paired over 100 professionals with students for long-lasting mentoring relationships. I didn't know this until I heard of EWL, but women who have a mentor in college are actually 130% more likely to hold a leadership position in their workplace later in life. While financial aid is, of course, incredibly important, mentoring helps these students make a difference in the way they approach the rest of their lives. Right now, EWL is raising money for their next round of scholarships. Every little bit helps. So head over to EWLUSA.org to learn more about how you can support their students in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin. Again, that's that's EWLUSA.org. Mrs. Parks joined the civil rights movement in Detroit, as well as continued to work on the national level. In some ways, what she was doing in Detroit in the late 50s and early 60s is analogous to what she was doing in Montgomery in the 40s and early 50s. The work was thankless again, and the results they could celebrate were few and far between. It's also somewhat difficult for people to envision this work in the North because there's such a myth of the North being a promised land of freedom and safety for Black people. People struggle to imagine that there was work that needed to be done in Detroit. Even as Dr. King was saying, quote, the racial issue that we confront in America is not a sectional, but a national problem. There is a pressing need for a liberalism in the North that is truly liberal, that firmly believes in integration in its own community as well as in the Deep South, end quote. Mrs. Parks worked especially for open housing and desegregated schools throughout the North. Given her love for youth, schools were a big focus for her. Schools were considered separate and unequal. 45% of black students in Detroit attended schools that were more than 80% black. The curriculums were out of date and filled with stereotypes. Black students weren't taught literature, global history, or black history. And when they protested this, teachers were known to respond, black people didn't do anything. Local activists, including Parks, were disappointed by the caution of the Detroit NAACP chapter. She would numerous times work outside of the NAACP, calling attention to problems in Detroit using her own platform of fame. But all of this was mostly ignored except to reaffirm her as a target. She continued to receive hate mail and menacing phone calls well into the 1970s. Meanwhile, any protests in the North were met with incredulity by Northern lawmakers who refuted demands by saying inane crap like, this is not the South, completely blind to the problems in their own cities. City officials would claim to be, quote, colorblind, saying that the problems of Detroit impacted all people the same. Then they would claim that it was a, quote, culture of poverty that led to the problems in black neighborhoods, not systemic issues that could be fixed by changing laws. These same lawmakers were of course then very shocked by the uprisings and militancy of the late 1960s, probably claiming that if someone had just told them that there was a problem. (sighs) Yeah. And yet, most of the interviews that journalists did with her, even her own autobiography, ignore a lot of her work in Detroit, despite the fact that she lived there for 50 years longer than she ever lived in Montgomery. 
Once, in a 1970 interview, Mrs. Parks betrayed a little frustration with the blindness toward Northern racism. The journalist asked her why she'd given up her civil rights work in the South, and she said, quote, I don't know whether I could have been more effective as a worker for freedom in the South than I am here in Detroit. Really, the same thing that has occurred in the South is existing here. We do have the same problems, end quote. By this point, Dr. King and other civil rights leaders had formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to fight against segregation in the South. While Mrs. Parks didn't really have a huge role there, considering that she no longer lived in the South, whenever there was a convention or a march, she traveled down for it. In her memoir, she tells the story of the SCLC convention of September 1962. It was the final day of a five-day conference. A crowd of 300 people was sitting in rapt attention as Dr. King gave the final speech at the L.R. Hall Auditorium in Birmingham, Alabama. Announcements were happening, including that Sammy Davis Jr. had agreed to perform at a benefit in New York City to raise funds for the SCLC. Suddenly, a man jumped out of the sixth row, vaulted onto the stage, and punched Dr. King in the jaw. Before Dr. King could react, the man punched him again, hitting his neck. Reports of what happened next are mixed. According to the New York Daily News, after the second punch, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy and SCLC Executive Secretary Wyatt T. Walker stepped between them to end the fight. The crowd, meanwhile, had lunged forward, obviously concerned. A black female delegate threw her arms around the, the man who'd hit Dr. King, protecting him from the crowd and saying that he was, quote, disturbed. According to Rosa Parks, Dr. King had been trying to shield himself when he suddenly, quote, turned around to face the man and just dropped his hands by his side. The white man was so surprised that he just stared for a moment, long enough for the Reverend Wyatt T. Walker and some others to get between them. Dr. King yelled, don't touch him, we have to pray for him. Then he started talking quietly to the man, and he kept talking as the man was slowly let off the stage. There seemed to be more attention devoting to calming the man down than to looking after Dr. King. End quote. As a member of the audience, Mrs. Parks didn't see what happened backstage, but in the New York Daily News article, it said that King and Abernathy talked to the man named Roy James about why he had punched Dr. King. James revealed he was a member of the American Nazi Party because he wanted desegregation to be reversed. The party at the time had been targeting Sammy Davis Jr. for his marriage to Mae Britt, a white Swedish actress. According to James, it was the mention of the singer that had set him off. I suspect that claim is just Roy James trying to get himself out of trouble with the group. James was openly there to draw attention to himself within the American Nazi party. He hadn't just dropped by, like it was not a coincidence that he was there. This is a planned attack at a convention. He was sitting in a seat in the sixth row. James did this on purpose and the idea that he was just overcome with rage and like couldn't help himself is completely ridiculous. While this conversation was happening, Rosa Parks ran over to a drugstore and fetched a Coca-Cola and two aspirin, which she always said was her favorite cure for a headache. She found Dr. King backstage and gave him the medicine for his head. He was holding a handkerchief full of ice against his face. Nevertheless, Dr. King approached the police and said that he did not want to press charges. For Mrs. Parks, this was stunning. It was the moment when she realized that Dr. King, quote, believed so completely in nonviolence that it was even stronger than his instinct to protect himself from attack, end quote. Perhaps surprisingly, Mrs. Parks did not agree with him on this stance. Later in her autobiography, she talks about her childhood in Alabama and says that, quote, on an individual level, nonviolence could be mistaken for cowardice. And I personally see her point. I mean, if someone is going to kidnap you or attack you, peacefully sitting there doesn't stop that. You have to be able to fight for your own safety sometimes. You might remember that in the last episode, I talked about how Rose's family had slept with their clothes on so they could run if the KKK broke in. 
The KKK is and was all about harming innocent people. If they had broken into her home before she'd been able to run, I don't think nonviolence would have stopped the lynching. Her experience in Montgomery taught her that only collective nonviolence can be effective. Thanks to Dr. King, she had read about Gandhi and saw how his tactics had worked in India. But she still closed out a chapter saying, quote, To this day, I am not an absolute supporter of nonviolence in all situations. But I strongly believe that the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s could never have been so successful without Dr. King and his firm belief in nonviolence, end quote. Several months later, on June 23, 1963, Rosa Parks and Dr. King came together again for Detroit's Great March to Freedom. Nearly 200,000 people from Detroit marched dressed in their Sunday best with Parks and King leading the way. At the end, in front of Cobo Hall, Dr. King gave a speech reminding people that discrimination was just as present in Michigan as Alabama. Mrs. Parks thought it was the best speech she'd ever heard him give. The march, quote, highlighted the severe inequalities in Detroit and helped to accelerate a rising black militancy in the city. On July 27, 1963, so just about a month later, Mrs. Parks marched again. This time, the Detroit branch of the NAACP led a crowd of 200 people to protest housing discrimination in Oak Park. Mrs. Parks marched at the front once again. Despite her participation, though, there is no record of her ever joining the NAACP Detroit branch, probably because she considered it too conservative. It was openly anti-communist, having purged members with communist leadings, and it was very middle-class focused, much like the Montgomery branch had been when Raymond Parks had been a part of it. Just two months after that, Mrs. Parks participated in the 1963 March on Washington. There's a lot that has been said by a lot of people about that march, so I won't go into too much detail about it here. But in her autobiography, Mrs. Parks thought it was worth noting that, once again, no women were allowed to speak at that event where King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Women weren't even allowed to actually march on Washington. The planning committee thought it would be distracting to have the wives of the activists there. So they had a separate procession. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson. It guaranteed black people the right to vote and use of public spaces and reserve power for the federal government to prosecute anyone who broke the law. Of this, Mrs. Park said that the civil rights movement didn't, quote, change the hearts and minds of many white Southerners, but protection under the law was good too. But in 1965, registering people to vote still wasn't going well in the South. 150 children who were protesting in Selma were rounded up and literally herded out of town. The police used electric cattle prods to force them to keep up pace. It was documented on the news, and in the ensuing national fury, the SCLC decided to stage the Selma March, documented pretty thoroughly in the movie Selma. I mean that literally, by the way, several historians have deemed Selma to be 100% historically accurate. Mrs. Parks joined the march on that final day, March 25th, 1965. She wasn't well enough to march the entire way from Selma to Montgomery. She described the march as strange, and I'm actually just going to quote her whole story about it from her autobiography, because I think it illustrates really well the way that the myth of her not being an activist hurt her for the rest of her life. It seemed like such a short time that I had been out of Alabama, but so many young people had grown up in that time. They didn't know who I was and couldn't care less about me because they didn't know me. Marchers on that final lap were supposed to be wearing special colored jackets or other clothing, and I wasn't wearing the right color. They just kept putting me out of the march, telling me I wasn't supposed to be in it. I got put out of that march three or four different times. Whenever they would put me out, I would stand on the sidelines until somebody would pass by and say, Mrs. Parks, come on and get in the march. I would say I was in it, but they put me out. Then they'd say, well, come on and march with me this time. I remember I marched for a while with Dick Gregory's wife, Lillian. I marched with the gospel singer, Odetta. 
But somehow or another, I couldn't hold on to them or couldn't keep up with them. And then some of the youngsters just sort of pushed me out of the way. But I kept getting back in anyway, and I struggled through that crowd until I walked those eight miles to the Capitol. When we got downtown, someone did have me go up to the front of the line, and I had my picture taken with Roy Wilkins, head of the NAACP, and Ralph Bunch, the first black American winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, and other important people. Mostly, I remember being put out of that march. End quote. I find this kind of heartbreaking. Rosa Parks did so much for the civil rights movement, and many of the people in it didn't do much for her. At this point in 1965, she'd been without a steady job for almost 10 years, and her husband had been suffering as well. For once, though, Mrs. Parks was called onto stage. She was coaxed up to the podium by thunderous applause, which the New Yorker described as, quote, the most enthusiastic reception of all the speakers. She spoke about her personal history growing up under racism and her fear of the KKK attacks, as well as publicly confirmed her connection to the Highlander School. She didn't mention any of this in her autobiography, though, focusing instead on the dread that she felt after the march and the horror she felt learning that a white woman had been murdered in Alabama for driving around with a black person in her car. It wasn't until a young John Conyers was elected to Congress in 1964 that life finally got better for Rosa Parks again. She had actually campaigned for him and even convinced Dr. King to endorse him for Congress, even though King had purposely chosen to steer clear of any political races. It would be the only political endorsement he ever made, and Conyers credited Mrs. Parks as being the deciding factor in King's endorsement. She began working for him on March 1st, 1965, just before the Selma to Montgomery march. Conyers hired her to work with constituents in his Detroit office. It gave her a salary, health care, a pension, and the restoration of dignity that she had been denied for so long. It's important to note that this was the first and only paid political position that Rosa Parks ever held. Working for Senator Conyers, Mrs. Parks would travel all over Detroit, visiting constituents in schools, hospitals, and senior citizen homes, as well as community meetings and rallies. She addressed citizens' needs, helping them figure out welfare benefits, education, affordable housing, social security, and fighting job discrimination. Conyers had run on a platform of community activism, and Mrs. Parks kept him plugged into that while he was in Washington. She sometimes filled in for him at meetings with activists, but she also attended meetings because of her own moral compass, not just because the congressman sent her. I think their work fighting job discrimination is especially impressive. When charges came up that the IRS local office was discriminating against black women and refusing to promote them, Conyers' aides, including Mrs. Parks, went over and interviewed people on the spot about it. They put pressure on the national IRS office to fire the director who was causing the problems and were really successful. But, of course, not everyone was excited about Mrs. Parks' presence in Representative Conyers' office. She was sent rotten watermelons, voodoo dolls, and hateful letters directly to the office, mostly from white Detroit residents who saw her as the reason for the success of the civil rights movement and hated it. Conyers didn't allow this rising tide to intimidate him into firing her. In fact, he was awed by her presence, and she gave his junior term in Congress prestige. Together, Conyers and Parks focused on getting more black people elected to public office. Mrs. Parks supported Coleman Young's run for Common Council in 1960, and then with Conyers, she worked on George Crockett's run for the Recorder's Court in 1966, on Richard Austin's unsuccessful campaign to become the city's first black mayor in 1969, then Coleman Young's successful campaign for the same office in 1973, and on Irma Henderson's campaign to become the first black woman elected to Detroit City Council. Mrs. Parks did everything for them. She made appearances, made phone calls, did mailings and other office work, whatever it took. Of course, due to her prestige, she was often invited to make appearances at rallies and celebrations, 
As she traveled more and then as she aged, her job became more ceremonial, welcoming and entertaining the busloads of children who came to meet Representative Conyers, but she remained on staff for 23 years. In Detroit, Rosa Parks met Malcolm X just once. She went to one of his speaking engagements after he left the Nation of Islam and found that she liked what he had to say. As she says in my story, by that point, he was softening his stance on hating white people and on violence, preaching instead that violence should only be used in self-defense. That was the kind of balance between violence and nonviolence that Rosa Parks could get behind. In the mid-1960s, police brutality was becoming a focus point for many activists. The Detroit police were known for shooting first and asking questions later, and then often making up stories to defend slaying civilians. Following the 1965 Watts Rebellion in Los Angeles, the Detroit police became even more aggressive, using federal funds to create the Tactical Mobile Unit, which was ostensibly for crowd control, but which many black Detroit residents compared to the Gestapo for the way it targeted black residents and used increasingly violent methods. Mrs. Parks talked about it less frequently, but she did occasionally compare the police treatment in Detroit to what she experienced in Montgomery. At the end of 1965, the Detroit city government was very proud of itself for surviving the year without any kind of racial violence like what Watts and Harlem had experienced in the summer. Senator Conyer warned them not to get too cocky about this, saying, quote, that just means that the wrong citizen and the wrong policeman didn't happen to get together, end quote. He was proven right about 18 months later when the violence erupted in Virginia Park, the neighborhood where the Parks family still lived on the ground floor. Their apartment at the time was something of a salon where people gathered for critical discussion and robust debates about the civil rights movement. The Detroit Police Department was viewed as, quote, a white occupying army by many people in Virginia Park. Accusations of racial profiling and brutality mounted. 12th Street was the main thoroughfare through Virginia Park where lots of businesses operated. It became a hotspot for nightlife in the city. I'm going to quote a History.com article here because it's, I think it's just easier. At the corner of 12th Street in Claremont, William Scott operated a blind pig in a legal after-hours club on weekends out of the office of the United Community League for Civic Action, a civil rights group. The police vice squad often raided establishments like this on 12th Street, and at 3.35 a.m. on Sunday morning, July 23rd, they moved against Scott's club. On that warm, humid night, the establishment was hosting a party for several veterans, including two servicemen recently returned from the Vietnam War, and the bar's patrons were reluctant to leave the air-conditioned club. Out in the street, a crowd began to gather as police waited for vehicles to take the 85 patrons away. An hour passed before the last person was taken away, and by then about 200 onlookers lined the street. A bottle crashed into the street. The remaining police ignored it, but then more bottles were thrown, including one through the window of a patrol car. The police fled as a small riot erupted. Within an hour, thousands of people had spilled out onto the street from nearby buildings." End quote. According to the rebellious Mrs. Parks, Representative Conyers arrived on the scene around this point. He tried to get everyone to disperse, but people reacted badly. They were angry and frustrated, and a peaceful resolution was not what they wanted. He was jeered, and the crowd chanted, we want Stokely Carmichael at him. Reports start to differ at this point. According to History.com, the violence spread to a 100-block radius around Virginia Park. The state police were called in, then the National Guard, but the violence went on. Then 200 Army paratroopers were called in. But according to Theo Harris, the unrest encompassed only 200 square blocks, under what History.com says, and President Johnson sent in nearly 3,000 Army paratroopers. Quote, tanks rolled through the streets of Detroit and the police and National Guardsmen were given wide latitude to subdue the riot by any means necessary. Representative Conyers would later say what really went on was a police riot. 
peace finally descended on Thursday, July 27th. By the end of everything, 7,000 people had been arrested, 43 people were killed, and due to outbreaks of fires during the unrest, nearly 5,000 people were left homeless. Of the 43 people that died, 30 had been killed by police officers, including a few questionable murders of uninvolved citizens in their homes or in hotels. For the Parkses, the unrest had a personal impact. Raymond's barbershop was looted with lots of equipment stolen, and their new car was vandalized. Rosa spent most of the time at Conyers' office, which became a crucial way station. She sat in on many meetings with citizens filing complaints about police brutality during the uprising. She was, quote, deeply saddened by the events and attributed the uprising to the white citizens of Detroit spending decades refusing to listen to the nonviolent attempts at change. She saw the violence as a culmination of years of deafness by the white community, as well as the exclusion of black people from America's post-war affluence. She stressed that full American citizenship was tied to a decent standard of living and an unbowed identity, something that the white people in Detroit and the country at large were trying to deny yet another generation of young black men in particular. The result of the violence was the Kerner Commission, which identified 150 riots or moments of civil disorder between 1965 and 1968. Detroit's was considered one of the largest. The authors of the Kerner Report had very important words to say. Quote, discrimination and segregation have long permeated much of American life. They now threaten the future of every American. They did also say, however, quote, this deepening racial division is not inevitable. The movement apart can be reversed. What the rioters appeared to be seeking was fuller participation in the social order and the material benefits enjoyed by the majority of American citizens. Rather than rejecting the American system, they were anxious to obtain a place for themselves in it, end quote. I also just want to note that the use of the word riot is contested for a lot of these moments in history. For instance, the Watts Rebellion in LA was originally called the Watts Riot, but using the word riot implies a level of lawlessness and is kind of part of an ongoing attempt to discredit. A lot of these moments get compared to a lot of other moments in American history, for instance, during the Revolutionary War, kind of drawing a parallel saying that had the British government won the Revolutionary War, the moments that we call rebellions now that led to freedom, those moments had the British government won would have been called riots. And so while this moment in Detroit is still currently referred to as the Detroit riots of 1967, I would be very shocked if in the near future we don't hear them start to be called the Detroit Uprising or the Detroit Rebellion, just because that's what's happened with Watts and that's what happened with Tulsa. It's becoming more clear that these weren't lawless moments of mindless violence but instead deliberate attempts to revolt against an oppressive government. So I just, I wanted to point out that the use of the word riot is probably going to start being contested at some point in the future. Nevertheless, in the midst of these violent summers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had been born and was getting to work. Mrs. Parks was a very active member of the Friends of the SNCC, abbreviated FOS, which was basically a group of adults who supported them with fundraising, advised them, and showed up for their efforts. They were particularly focused on Lowndes County, Alabama, where many young voters had become disillusioned with the Democratic Party after they had given ground to segregationist interests at the Democratic National Convention in August 1964. Mrs. Parks raised money and collected clothing to take to Lowndes County as part of her support of their efforts. In fact, Mrs. Parks made many trips down to Lowndes County, including one on March 27, 1966, when she made an appearance in the backwoods at a memorial service called No More Change or Sorrow. And I just want to point out, these were very dangerous trips she was making. 
A white volunteer, Jonathan Daniels, was killed for working with NCC in 1965. But Mrs. Parks knew how vital her appearances were for local activists. She'd become the symbol again by this point, known well by the new generation of activists as the mother of the whole movement. Dorothy Dewberry Aldridge, who accompanied Mrs. Parks on these trips, once said, Everybody was so honored to have her, end quote. I suspect that it was uplifting to see her. Even if they believed the tired seamstress myth, it was probably inspiring to see her come out and have her trial have been successful. It was during these FOS trips that Mrs. Parks met Stokely Carmichael, who would become a key leader in the Black Power movement. But at the time, he was like 21 or 22, and his reputation was equally known for his fast driving as it was for his activism. He was driving Mrs. Parks around Lowndes, and Aldridge was terrified he was going to get her killed in an accident. But Mrs. Parks apparently remained, quote, as calm as can be. Later, at a speech in Detroit, Carmichael would call Mrs. Parks his hero, and she would affirm her support for the Black Power movement in return. On April 4, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Mrs. Parks and her mother heard the news on the radio while listening to a sermon. In her autobiography, Parks talked about being devastated by an earlier moment when Dr. King had been stabbed even though he survived it. She attributes her horror about that to the surprise of it, and says that by the time he was shot, she had come to terms with the fact that there were people who wanted to do him harm. Nevertheless, she was deeply grieved by his death and wept. Harry Belafonte, the singer, took her to Atlanta for the funeral. This marked the beginning of a really sad period for Rosa Parks, one where she felt like, quote, we were losing everybody we thought was good. Robert Kennedy was assassinated just two months after Dr. King. Mrs. Parks had met Senator Kennedy and his wife Ethel at Dr. King's funeral and really liked them. In the 1970s, her husband Raymond, her brother Sylvester, and her mother Leona all got really sick at the same time. I mean, just so that she could visit them at all three hospitals around Detroit, Mrs. Parks had to drop down to part-time work with Senator Conyer. Raymond passed away in 1977 after a five-year battle with cancer. Sylvester died just a few months later, also from cancer. In 1978, Mrs. Parks herself moved into a senior living building, and there she personally nursed her mother until she died in 1979. By this point, Mrs. Parks was 66 years old and not in the best of health herself, but she kept on working, saying, I couldn't do everything I wanted to do, but I did what I could. Doing what she could included partnering with Detroit Public Schools and the Detroit News to establish the Rosa L. Parks Scholarship Foundation for college-bound high school seniors. For the rest of her life, a large portion of her speaking fees would go towards scholarships. In 1987, she founded the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development, which she envisioned as a community center that offered programs for youth to continue their education and have hope for the future. The Institute puts on the Pathways to Freedom bus tours, which introduce young people to important civil rights and underground railroad sites throughout the country. She never did stop caring about the next generation after her work with the youth chapter of the NAACP. On August 30th, 1994, Mrs. Parks was robbed and assaulted inside her home in Detroit. A man named Joseph Skipper broke down her door, but claimed that he'd actually chased away an intruder. He requested a reward, and Parks paid him, but then he demanded more. Parks refused, and so he attacked her. Hurt and badly shaken, Mrs. Parks called a friend who called the police. A neighborhood manhunt led to Skipper's capture and a reported beating of him. Skipper was sentenced to 8 to 15 years and had to be transferred to a prison in another state for his own safety. One does not mess with Rosa Parks, clearly. Suffering anxiety upon returning to that home, Mrs. Parks ended up moving into a secure high-rise apartment building. It was an expensive place to live, though. In 2002, she was served an eviction notice for missing rent. This was less due to poverty and more likely due to cognitive decline, though. By then, she was almost 90, and she was having trouble keeping up with things. 
For a while, her rent was paid by the Hartford Memorial Baptist Church. In 2004, though, her rent payments fell behind again, and this time the problem was highly publicized. There were allegations of financial mismanagement of her affairs by the Parks Institute. The Institute fired back that the whole thing was an error. Realizing who they were evicting and the scandal that was brewing, the company that owned the building announced that they were forgiving the back rent and would allow Mrs. Parks to live there rent-free for the rest of her life. Which, yeah, they probably should have done that sooner. In her autobiography, Mrs. Parks didn't make mention of the many awards she's been given in her lifetime. I think the fact that the laws changed was the most important result for her. But she did mention that she was proud that Cleveland Avenue, the street where she was arrested, was renamed Rosa Parks Avenue in 1965. The street she lived on in Detroit was later renamed Rosa Parks Boulevard. In 1999, she was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest award given by the legislative branch. Earlier the same year, President Bill Clinton honored her in his State of the Union address, in which he said, quote, She's sitting down with the First Lady tonight, and she may get up or not as she chooses. <laughs> Rosa Parks passed away on October 24, 2005, at the age of 92. She was survived by her sister-in-law, her 13 nieces and nephews, and all of their children. Parks's coffin was flown to Montgomery to lay in repose at the church she'd attended for many years there. After, it was taken by bus to Washington, D.C. for her to lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Lying in state at the U.S. Capitol is a tradition begun back in 1852. Rosa Parks was the 31st person to ever be honored this way. The first American who was not a U.S. government official, the first woman ever, and the second black person to be honored this way. Today, she's buried in Detroit between her husband and her mother. In many remembrances, Rosa Parks is described as having a radiant kindness and a deep empathy with people suffering. Edward Vaughn, the proprietor of the only black bookstore in Detroit, remembered her and Raymond as his best customers and a, quote, great couple. Together, they were two of the quietest people you ever see. Her legacy has often been, quote, reduced to the unwitting action of a quiet seamstress with aching feet. At some point, Parks critiqued this mischaracterization, saying, I didn't tell anyone my feet were hurting. It was just popular, I suppose, because they wanted to give some excuse other than the fact that I didn't want to be pushed around. So that's the story of Rosa Parks. I hope you liked today's episode of Unruly Figures. I know that it was really long and uh, the two-parter was a surprise even to me, but I think it was fun and I really, really enjoyed learning about Rosa Parks' life. Thanks for listening and coming along with me. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate the show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Mm-hmm.